0: When you talk with people very long about the Lord Jesus Christ, people who don't yet know him, you run into some questions that are questions of unbelief. They're asked from uh, the standpoint of unbelief, and they're asked with a, a gigantic misconception. And that misconception is that there is no difference between the God that we're proclaiming and them. That they don't accept the infinite nature of God and the finite nature of man so they might ask questions like can God create a rock that he can't move because we can't fathom that that seems to be an answer that would contradict because we have finite minds how many angels can dance on the edge of on the head of a pin I just want to say have you read what the Bible says about angels how on earth could even one dance on the head of a pin But then there are other questions that are asked by people who don't know the Lord as well as people who do these tensions in Scripture because of our finite minds that are not a tension in God because he is infinite. Why is there evil in the world? And if if God is a good God, then he must not be powerful enough to stop it. And if he's powerful enough to stop evil and he doesn't, he must not be a good and loving God. And yet God is sovereign over all things. Our infinite mind has trouble with this, especially if it hasn't been informed by the Scriptures. Well, another question, a question that I'm hoping that we have answered in a more solid way this morning, is if God is sovereign, why do we pray? If, if God is sovereign, if He predetermines all things, if He is working His will and His way out and everything happens according to His will and nothing can thwart it because he is all-powerful, then why pray? I mean, can we actually change God's mind? Because if we can change his mind, that would make him fickle. And if we can't, then why pray? He's going to do what he wants anyway, and we end up in a fatalistic determinism that the Bible does not teach. So among other things this morning, we're, we're going to see God work in great deliverance. We're going to see the... the, the attempt at manipulating the man of God by someone who is anti-God. We're going to see God move in a powerful way. We're going to see the man of God pray. We're going to see the deliverance. But prayer is at the center of it. And I think we'll be able to answer the question. I know we will be able to answer the question today. Why should we pray? Because we teach that God is sovereign. Amen. And you're not kind of sovereign, are you? You either is or you ain't. You're either in control of all things and everything bows to you, or you're not sovereign. Someone or something else is. And the Bible teaches and we affirm that God is sovereign. He rules the universe, He does what He will, His will will be done, and He works everything out according to His will. And we should pray fervently all the time without ceasing, expecting God to act. How does that happen? Well, in Isaiah chapter 38, we are shown that answer today. Turn there with me. I'm not going to have you stand to read all of Isaiah 38. We're going, or 37, sorry, I've got 38 in front of me. 37, we made it through verse 7 last week of chapter 37 in Isaiah, and we'll make it to the end of the chapter today, and we'll read it in chunks as we go through Because in these verses, 37, verse 8, through the end of chapter 37, we observe seven facets of Yahweh's deliverance of Jerusalem from Sennacherib. Seven facets of Yahweh's deliverance. Of Jerusalem from Sennacherib. Now remember last week when we, when we looked at chapter 36 and the beginning of chapter 37. We saw the arrogance of the king of Assyria on display again, didn't we? We've seen it before. We've seen several times in the book of Isaiah already where, where God exposes and challenges the arrogance of the king of Assyria and the nation that follows him. At the same time that we see that God raised Assyria up to do his bidding. As he always does with nations. He, as the words of Isaiah, is he'll whistle and they'll come from the east. So God is in charge of this and he uses Assyria for his purposes, but he also will... Come against Assyria, because they 're at cross purposes for his ultimate will, and so we saw the King of the, scenario, uh, the the King of Assyria, Sennacherib, send his envoy to meet Hezekiah, the king of Judah, meet his envoy and remember that that the king of Assyria has already overtaken most of Judah, most of the southern kingdom, all but two of the provinces are already in his control, and the one besides Um, Judah, the one besides Jerusalem, he's about to overtake. He has them under siege and they're about to fall as well. So Jerusalem's the only one left and he sends these messengers to meet them at the exact same place that Hezekiah, king of Judah, his daddy was met by Isaiah, King Ahaz, where King Ahaz refused to trust in God. You remember that back in chapter 7 that King Ahaz was given the opportunity to trust in God and not fear those, those firebrands, those, those stumps, those firebrands, the leaders of, of uh, the northern kingdom and Syria. So meeting at the same place, draw our mind back, here's another opportunity for the king, God's king, to trust in God rather than men. And Sennacherib, his, his um, representatives, Rabshakeh, they they challenge, and they all challenge, they're challenging over and over and over this idea of trust. Who are you going to trust? Seven times between verse 4 and verse 15, the word trust is used to challenge. Are you really trusting? Are you trusting? Should you trust in Egypt? You can't trust in Egypt. They're weak. They'll fail you. Are you really trusting in Hezekiah and what he says about his God? Well, his God's probably mad at him because he's taken down the high places. A misunderstanding of holy worship. And so they're constantly pressing on him and pressing on him and through the representatives. So the representatives come back and their their clothes are torn and they're mourning over what's going to happen and Hezekiah mourns and he sends the representatives to Isaiah and Hezekiah goes into the temple, but he tells the represent- his representatives to go to Isaiah and pray to his God. So he's moving in the right direction, but there's still a weakness here. There's still fear in this. And last week, we ended up where we understood that in chapter 37, God makes a promise and Isaiah comes back to them with the word of the Lord in verse six of chapter thirty-seven. Say to your master: This is the this is Eliakim and and the representatives that that are going back. Eliakim and Shebna and and one other representative whose name escapes me. Somebody feel free to just. Yell it out because I'm not seeing it. Three of his representatives are coming back and they go to Isaiah. Isaiah comes back to those same representatives. And in verse 6 he says, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return unto his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And that's where we left. This week we pick up in verse 8 because the representatives of Sennacherib returned and ratcheted up a little bit. So the first facet of Yahweh's deliverance of Jerusalem that we see is Sennacherib challenges the ability of Yahweh to deliver Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned. That's the representative of, of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libnah, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish, Remember, Lachish is where they were building the siege, and they were about to overtake that next to the last province in Judah. Now the king heard concerning Tirhakah, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, so let's keep ourselves in the, in the flow of what's going on. The king of Assyria now retreats a little bit to go fight a different battle because Egypt is coming up. And remember, he's thinking Egypt is coming up to do what? join Judah in the fight against him. So he goes back to Hezekiah just one more time and he ratchets it up because if he can talk Hezekiah into not rebelling against him, the king of Assyria, then there will be a movement in his favor. So verse 10 says, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now does that strike you? Remember earlier in chapter 37 when the Rabshakeh came, he never called the king the king of Judah. He just called him Hezekiah. It was the ultimate disrespect to talk about a king and not call him king. Now the king of Assyria speaks to the king of Judah and the representative of God in Jerusalem. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do you see how he ratchets up the attack and the blasphemy against God? Before the, the representatives of the king of Assyria are talking to the men on the wall, the army, and saying, don't let your king deceive you about your God. Now, king to king, he says, king, don't let your God deceive you. And he ratchets it up, taking it against God, again, elevating himself above God that, as if he has more power Verse 11, behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands. Here's that fear again, trying to drive him into fear to submit to him, devoting them to destruction. Remember, that means nothing left. And shall you be delivered? How, he's saying, How are you going to be any different here? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan and Haran, Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Saravaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? He's listing off all of these nations that he and his father have overcome. And remember the mindset, right? The mindset is if one king and his army can overthrow another king and his army, then his gods are more powerful than the nation that's overthrown. So the king has set himself up as God. And he's saying, where were the gods of all these nations? Because we were able to overtake them, and their gods were not powerful enough. So he's coming back to the same thing. Who will you trust? Will you trust your God? Do you think your God is more powerful than the gods of the nations that we have already overcome? So the challenge is remade, but it is also ratcheted up. It is, it is more um, focused on Hezekiah himself and trying to make him fear. Clearly, he knows the story of his preceding kings with Hezekiah's father Ahaz, who did not trust in the Lord, and he's trying to force the same outcome. I don't know if you have ever heard about the, the sales technique, where uh, a salesman will be taught how to do, be a better salesman by a senior salesman and they might hold up a a piece of paper like this that has an orange dot down in the corner, and the the trainer holds up that paper, completely white paper, with an orange dot in the corner, and he says, what do you see? Well, naturally, what's the first thing people say? The orange dot. And the trainer says, and that's why you're not going to make a good salesman, because you're focused on the dot and not all the other possibilities of the blank page. Now this is the opposite for a believer isn't it What are all the white possibility what are all the white paged possibilities for Hezekiah Well the army may come in he may overtake us in Jerusalem God may give us over to them that's all the possibilities that could happen they could lose they could be destroyed their nation could be destroyed and God is saying do you see the orange dot That's what he wants us to focus on, him and him alone. And that's exactly what Hezekiah wants him not focused on. Don't think about your God. Think about all the gods that we have already shown our power over. And what makes you think it will be different? Switch it around. You know, let me just let you into a little bit. There are times that I get these things in my mind. And last night, Paige and I were talking about this text, and I switched it around. And I prayed right then, oh, don't let it be one of those mornings. (laughs) So, you know, we may have a chorus coming back. No, Hezekiah, Pastor Rob. That's okay. I'm all right with that. So, if the curtain would come down at this point in the text, if we were watching a play the first time we'd ever seen, we don't know what the the answer is. If the curtain comes down, we're turning to the people we're with in the theater and say... What's Hezekiah going to do? What's he going to do? Will he be different than Ahaz? Remember in that first act, way back in chapter 7, Ahaz didn't do very well. What's Hezekiah going to do? Well, the second facet of Yahweh's deliverance of Jerusalem from Sennacherib is that Hezekiah prays for Yahweh's deliverance. Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh. So there's our answer. Very quickly, Hezekiah does not respond to them. So he's hearing the words of Sennacherib in the letter, but he's reading it in front of them. And you can imagine what the people there are saying. So what's your response to our king? And he just turns and walks away. The same way he told his representatives in the last chapter not to answer Rabshakeh. He does not answer them. He doesn't even give them the pleasure of a response. No matter what that response would be. He just turns after he reads it and he goes to the house of the Lord and he spreads the letter before Yahweh. And then he prays. Look at what he prays. O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel. Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Do you see how he starts? What a rich way to start. And we can learn from this as well, right? He, he's looking to God of what he knows about God, and he's praying back to God the beauty, power, and strength, and majesty of his own attributes. He's praying them back to God. When we enter into prayer this way, our prayer should be worship. Should it not? It's not just, okay, God, here I am. Got a few seconds. Would you do this, 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 and this for me? If that's your prayer, then it's self-centered and that's bouncing off the ceiling. I mean, it's not that God can't hear you, but this is not Entry into our relationship with the one true God. And when we remember who our God is, it automatically puts us in a place of peace, joy, and worship. And that's what this does for Hezekiah. Look what he says, O Yahweh of hosts. Now, what a great way to start out, right? When you've got the most powerful army in the world of your day that's taken over um, most of the provinces in your country and headed your way and threatening you, and you pray, You are Yahweh of hosts. He uses his covenant name, Yahweh, and of hosts, both those in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, and on earth. So he starts out with the very need that he has that God and his name and his character will deal with. Oh, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel. So he's used his covenant name, but now he's reminding him that wicked king has talked about all the gods of those other lands, but you are the God. You are our God. You are the God of Israel. Enthroned above the cherubim. Now, we might think automatically that being enthroned above the cherubim is an, is an otherworldly place, and it could stand for that in the heavenly temple that He is enthroned in the heavens. But enthroned above the cherubim in the temple means what? That is the place that God has chosen to dwell with His people. And so He's saying, You dwell with us, you don't dwell with them. You dwell with us. You're close to us. You, you have a relationship with us. And the name Yahweh expresses that covenant relationship. So, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Your closeness, your nearness to your people. You are the God... The only God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. So the kingdom that's coming against us, the kingdom that they've overcome, you are the God of all of them. And, you, and, and in case we're, not, we're lacking in the reasons why, you created them all. You create heaven and earth. So the creator has a right. The potter has a right over his clay, amen? The creator has a right over his creation, and he created everything. So now, wherever Hezekiah started, which was a place of strength, Right? He just read the letter, turned around, walked into the temple and started praying. You think he's stronger now? By reminding himself who his God is? Do you think God is listening in, the, in a glorified sense even more? As, as Hezekiah prays to him, praying his own character back to him? What's he say in verse 17? Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Now that's a packed statement, is it not? Is is does God the Father have ears and eyes? He doesn't. But do the idols that are overturned by God have them? Those made of wood and stone, they have ears, they have eyes. But what can they not do? They cannot see, and they cannot hear. So this is a slap at all the other gods saying, you don't have ears or eyes, but you hear. You see. And he's using anthropomorphic language to tell us that God is a living God who sees and hears, not the same as the dead gods. Just because Assyria came in and overtook one of those nations, and that means Assyria says that they overtook their gods, those gods were no gods at all. You are the God, the only God of all the kingdoms of the earth. So he's, he's beginning his petition Incline your ear to us. In verse 18. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So this is reality, right? They have overtaken the nations. Now God's already told Israel how many times God is the one who raised them up to do that, right? Right? When they did that, they were doing Yahweh's bidding. But what he's, what he's reminding um, himself, his people, and, and he's telling God the reality that th- their gods were no gods at all. And that's why they were destroyed. Not because Assyria is more powerful for you than you, because you are the one true living God who resides with your people. They were just idols made of wood and stone. And so that's the reason they were destroyed. So now, verse 20... Look back there at your text at verse 20. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. You see what he doesn't say? Save us because I'm not ready to die yet. Our people aren't ready to die yet. We still have life to live. We want to see our grandkids grow up. He's not praying any of that, is he? His prayer is focused on the nature and character of God, the power of God, and the purpose that he should act is for the glory of his own name. We'll see that concept come up yet again. But that you alone are Yahweh. The nations need to know that. Now that's been an overarching theme in Isaiah since the beginning, hasn't it? Remember all the way back in chapter 2, where the nations were going to come to the mountain where God was, and they would come and seek his counsel. And at the very into that passage, chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about all of this happening because God alone is the one who receives the glory. So this is a pregnant and concise and to the point prayer of the king of God's people to the God of God's people. And he brings it out in such a way that for us, reminds us of other passages so well that we can pray in the same way. Keep your finger in Isaiah 37 and turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? O Israel, trust in the Lord, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Yahweh has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear Yahweh, both the small and the great. May Yahweh give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by Yahweh who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise Yahweh, nor to any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise Yahweh. Many passages of scripture remind us of the same thing. The Psalms are full of a prayer diary for us, are they not? To just open up and pray back to the Lord, his character, our situation, the trust that the psalmist had in him, even in those Psalms that the psalmist is depressed and he is seeing evil all around him, he always turns back to faith in Yahweh who is Lord over all of that. So the way we pray is to pray Scripture back to God. It puts us in a worshipful mood. It puts us in a in a safe um, situation because whatever the white paper is around us, the orange dot is right in front of us. God and His power through His Son Jesus is all that we're focusing on. We saying that, did we not? He's our hope in life and death. So Snachereb challenges the ability of Yahweh to deliver to Jerusalem. Hezekiah prays for Yahweh's deliverance. But beginning in verse 21, Yahweh convicts and sentences the oppressor who necessitates his deliverance. Now this is where the richness starts to come before us about prayer and its, its connection to the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 21 of Isaiah 37. Then Isaiah... The son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that Yahweh has spoken concerning him. Do you see this connection? Hezekiah prays, God acts, but he says, I'm acting because you prayed. There is a direct correlation between Hezekiah's prayer and God's acting. And immediately we go, well, that's what God promises. He promises to hear the prayers of these people and act upon them. And we know that he acts upon them according to his will, right? We can't pray for the Mercedes and expect it in our garage if that's not God's will. I don't recommend that you pray for the Mercedes. Just if you're going to get it from God, let him bless you with it. Don't ask him for such selfish things. But God can do what he pleases, amen? So it's it's clearly connected and we're resting here, right? This is comfortable for us. Oh good. I can pray and God will act. Pretty dangerous at times, isn't it? We need to pray according to his will, and that is clearly what we're about to find out that Hezekiah prayed according to the will of God. Look at verse 22. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. So it's being said here. God's people are like behind the army. And this is very special for us because God has already said he's going to turn the army back to their, back to their home, right? So it's God's people behind them mocking them. Verse 23, whom have you mocked and reviled? This is to Assyria. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? And we know that in the physical realm, they've done that against Israel, right? Against Hezekiah and his people. But what does Isaiah say? Against the Holy One of Israel. His holy character is put back in front of us again. Remember, the Holy One of Israel is a constant theme um, in the language of Isaiah. And he says, you've done all of this to Israel, but it's been against me because I am their God. And now I am pronouncing on you. Verse 24. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountain, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Now, that, the king of Assyria may not have said all of those things, but what is God saying about the king of Assyria? He is high and lifted up. He is arrogant. Look at the hyperbole that's in the text. You can see it right from the beginning. You've taken your chariots to the heights of the mountains. You don't take chariots into the mountains for battle. You want to lose that battle? Then ride your chariots up and try to go up the rocky hills. But it's the arrogance, it's the pomp that's coming out of the king of Syria. That they're going to cut down the cedars of Lebanon, the tallest cedars, to the remote height. That they, that they can go and tame the Nile River so much that they can say that it's dried up under the soles of their feet. So God is demonstrating their arrogance, which he has done over and over already in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 10, verse 12 says, The Lord will punish the speech of the arrogant heart Of the king of Assyria. And the boastful look in his eyes. And that this is the mighty powerful God. Who says that. And that's the mighty powerful God. Who speaks here. He's calling out their arrogance. In verse 24 and 25. 23 through 25. But now. We're given things to think about. Are we not? Look at verse 26. Have you not heard. That I. Determined it long ago I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength literally short of hand are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field like tender grass like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So let's deal with... the. The second half of verse 26 and on. God has determined from long ago that he would raise up Assyria to do just what Assyria has done. To bring devastation to lands. Primarily because he's bringing Assyria against his people. Remember, Assyria takes the northern kingdom into captivity 21 years before this. Remember, we're about 701 BC right now. And they were taken into captivity, the northern kingdom in 722. It's still the same campaign. God has raised them up to do what he's done but we also learned earlier in this book that this flood of judgment from Assyria would rise up to the necks of the southern kingdom but not quite overtake them and that's what we're living in that's what Isaiah and Hezekiah are living in right now so God is the one who has done all of this he has raised them up verse 28 uses that language of uh, that we see and it should remind you of Psalm 139 that's that starts out O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. It is For me, it is high. I cannot attain it. What's that saying about God's relationship to his people? That he knows them intimately. And not only does he know them, but he knows everything about what they will do and when they will rise up and when they will sit down. That's what he's saying about Assyria in chapter 37, verse 28. I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, but he also knows you're raging against me. And automatically you're thinking of Psalm 2, aren't you? What we sang this morning, we're thinking of Psalm 2, that the nations have gathered together to, and they've gathered together to rage against Yahweh and his son. They've gathered together to do that. And what does God do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. So that's the language that we're supposed to be hearing right now. That they are part of those who have raged against him. Verse 29 talks about their complacency that has come to God's ears. Now that's their ease. They think they're in so much power and so safe from being overtaken that they're complacent. They're living their lives in ease. And God says that has come up before me. Because what should they be doing? They should be turning to the God who has used them. They have seen God's righteous work already, and they've taken credit for it. And they're not turning toward them. And he says, I'll, I'll put a hook in your nose, a bit in your mouth. This is exactly what the Assyrians do, did to their enemies. They put hooks in their mouth. They, put, they gathered them together with hooks tying them together to march them in. They were brutal warriors. And you can find examples of this in 2 Chronicles 33.11 and Ezra 19.9 uh, where Assyria treats their enemies this way. So God has been in charge of all of this. So if we go back to verse 26, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago, I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass? The context is talking about what he's done with Assyria, right? That's our context. But is that true of God with all things? Does God with all things, does he determine it long ago? Does he plan it from days at all and then bring it to pass when he says? That's exactly what he does the scriptures are full of the, the, the sovereign hand of God moving according to what he has promised to do from long ago even in our own salvation what does he say that we were, we were elected before the foundation of the world those who are in Christ we see this constantly through the scriptures so it's applied in this time to Assyria but it is true for all times and all places so which is true? did God act because Hezekiah prayed or did God act because he preordained it from the foundations of the world? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Does God ordain the means and the end or just the end? He ordains both, does he not? If he's sovereign over all things, does he not ordain both? Does he not ordain, and did he not ordain, according to the scriptures here, what he would do to Assyria and when he would do it? Did he do to Assyria what he promised to do under Ahaz? He didn't, did he? He promised to Ahaz that he would overcome his enemies, and Assyria still stayed, and they were all banding together to fight against Assyria. God didn't come there. Ahaz didn't pray. Because God, before the foundation of the world, deemed that he would do this when The prayer was prayed. When Hezekiah prayed, he would do this. This is the way prayer works. We're praying in God's will. If God's will will be done, if he's advancing the kingdom at all times, if his word never comes back void, if all his purposes will come to pass, then when we pray according to his will, he is deemed that he would bring those purposes to pass and our prayers would be the vehicle, the means by which he actually actuated those prayers. And so both things are true. And it should motivate our prayer life. You remember what James says in James chapter 4? He's dealing with a troubled group of people. And he says, you have not because you ask not. That brings us the idea that there are some things that we don't have because we don't ask God for. And you say, well, how can that be if he ordains everything to pass? Well, what if you don't have things that he ordained to come to pass when you prayed? And you didn't pray. And that was his stipulation. In his own sovereign decrees, in his own sovereign hand, he ordained that he would bring that to pass when that prayer happened. That's brought to us over and over in Scripture. So it gives us a fence around our prayers because we're always desiring to pray in God's will because when we pray in God's will, what do we know is going to happen? Our prayers are going to be answered. And we can't always know God's will, right? We're not omniscient, we're finite. He's infinite, he's omniscient, but we're praying, asking God to make our prayers within his will. It's not wrong for us to pray for the healing of someone who God intends to kill. It's not, pray for a, it's not beyond us praying for the healing of someone who's sick and they will be sick unto death. But sometimes, and you've all experienced this, people have prayed and that person has not died. That person, the cancer that was supposed to kill them, did not kill them. We're praying according to God's will. And both of these are set before us. And it makes us fearless. It made Hezekiah fearless. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Faith is a refusal to panic. I love that. Faith in God is a refusal to panic. And why would we panic if he is working out his will in his way according to his sovereign plan and he invites us in in prayer to be a part of that? And so we're given a clear picture here of what this looks like. Turn to a couple of passages. I'm not going to have you turn to a lot of passages today, but I want you to turn over to Isaiah 46. Keep your finger in Isaiah 37. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Your transgressors remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. No, it's not chapter 8. Jeremiah 18. Only one digit off. That's not bad, is it? Jeremiah 18. An illustration of from the potter's house that God has a right over, the, over his creation. But look at verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, and he goes on to talk about the plans that he has in Jeremiah 18. But there is God's will brought out before us. That is the preordained will of God shown to us that he ordained something to happen when the means happen. If he brings forward a pronouncement of destruction and they repent, it's within his character. And he has set it forth in his plan to relent of what he intended to do because it was his intended desire to relent if and when they repented. And the same thing switches it around for us. If, they were, if he had planned to bless them and then they turn evil against them. I mean, just think of, of, of Jonah in his ministry in Nineveh. God had pronounced destruction on them. And then he sent Jonah in to pray. And it was a half hearted prayer to repent, right? He's an unwilling prophet at this point, it seems. And yet, God's, st- and it makes him mad that he even has to go do this because this is a wicked people. And yet he goes and prays, and what does God do? He relents, because the people repented. One more place, Acts chapter 4. Remember, we're establishing this principle that God ordains the means and the ends, and that our prayers are ordained by God as he is working his will and his way. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, that is, Peter and John um, released from prison. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, And then he quotes from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now look what happens when God's people band to pray according to his word, trusting in his sovereign hand and praying his will. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When God's people pray, God acts. He's ordained it to be that way. He draws us closer to him. He gives us assurance, he gives us strength, he causes fear to ebb away, and he's ordained that our prayers would be a part of his sovereign working, sovereignly working his will and his way out in the world in which we live. It's a humbling and awe-inspiring experience. I'm wondering, how's your prayer life? I mean, this brings me to my knees, does it you? You? Are you praying all the time this way? Are you praying that you know that God is acting his will and his way? His, His counsels will not be thwarted. His will will be done. Everything that he speaks will not come back void. And he said, by the way, pray for my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's told us to do that. And how many times do we throw up a little prayer and then go back to trying to solve the issues ourselves? Or we throw up the same prayer that I talked about about, earlier. It's something like, God, we know you're the creator of the universe and we know that you love your people, so would you do these things? Amen. And then we're back to our life and trying to live as if we haven't prayed and he's not going to act and he doesn't want that relationship with us because we're tied with him. We're in union with his son. It's a great invitation. Well, not only is there prayer, but and an answer that God gives back in Isaiah chapter 37. But we get to see what goes on. We don't always get to see this, but in this case we get to see what God has promised and what God has carried out and even the basis for him doing that. So back in Isaiah 37, let's look at the fourth facet of Yahweh's deliverance of Jerusalem from Sennacherib. Yahweh gives a sign concerning his deliverance beginning in verse 30. And this shall be a sign for you. Now remember, Ahaz was offered a sign, right? God says, what sign would you like? And Ahaz was super spiritual and said, oh, I wouldn't tempt God by asking for a sign. There's no asking here. Why not? Because Ahaz was being tested. No, Ahaz in chapter 7 was being tested. Thank you, though. (laughs) It would be like me to say that. Ahaz in chapter 7 was being tested and God says, ask for me a sign. And he wouldn't do it. So there was no answer. Here, Hezekiah has already prayed. He's already come to the Lord and asked him to work. So God gives them graciously a sign. And look what this sign is. This shall be a sign for you. That's singular. So this is the you here is singular. It's for Hezekiah. This year, you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs forth from that... Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So the beginning of this, the physical sign of this sign is it's for Hezekiah. The second you there, you shall eat. That's implied in the text. So it's really not there. This is a sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself. And the second year, what springs forth from that. Then the rest of the verbs are Plural. Then in the third year, y'all shall reap, y'all, y'all shall sow, y'all shall reap, y'all shall plant vineyards, y'all shall eat the fruit. See, southern works well when you've got to try to tell the difference between you's, because we can't see it in our text, right? These are these are verbs that have a number to them. And so it's a sign to Hezekiah that there will be all of this, this movement, this war in Judah uh, uh, that Hezekiah has Um, endured at the hands of Sennacherib, it stopped their planting. They haven't been able to plant. They haven't been able to harvest. And God says that's only a short time. There will be enough seed in the ground for this year and next year, and then you will be able to get back to normal. So it's a promise that even though things are hard right now, I'm in control of this, and you'll have enough to eat, and you'll be able to return to normal. All the people will sow and reap and plant and eat. But there's a spiritual side of this too. Verse 31, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So he's, he's bringing the, the physical promise, you're not going to starve, with the spiritual promise that has always been through Isaiah, there will be a remnant, amen? And it's brought to us again. The remnant has already been prayed for. Last week we saw that, that God said he would redeem this remnant. And now we're seeing that this remnant has a purpose. It will grow down and bear fruit up. So there is a spiritual reality, a covenant reality, that God is bringing forth for his people. But he, it's not only Yahweh giving a sign. We see these, these last five uh, facets are all based in Yahweh. Yahweh convicts and sentences the oppressors. Yahweh gives a sign concerning his deliverance. And the fifth facet is Yahweh guarantees his deliverance. Look at verse 33. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or be, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. So in these two verses, Yahweh is guaranteeing what he's already promised, right? And he's guaranteeing with specific, specificity. There's not going to be even an arrow shot. That that siege ramp that's being built at Lachish, that's not going to be built here. God goes into specifics about the promise to continue to encourage Hezekiah and his people. But he not only guarantees the deliverance, he grounds the deliverance. Look at verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. You see the connection with the remnant? The remnant is being preserved so that the Messiah, the rightful heir to David's throne, will come from the remnant, the lion of Judah, the rightful heir to the throne. And so God says, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for the sake of my name because if his nation gets overthrown, his his name in all the nations they are going to despise it, they're going to run it down because he doesn't, their God isn't even strong enough to save them. And he says it's the zeal of Yahweh. It is that, that committed, Powerful pursuit that this is what God will do, the zeal of Yahweh will do it. It reminds us of chapter 9, doesn't, doesn't it? With the messianic promises that end up in chapter 9 uh, that we look at so often at, at the at Advent and Christmas time. All of those promises that end up with the zeal of Yahweh will do this. This is the the ultimate promise to God's people that everything I've said will come true not only because of what's been said but to remind you this is what I'm passionate about. Bringing glory to my name and being a God who's faithful to the covenant I made with David. And so it's grounded in his work and it is also grounded in the person and work of Christ which we'll come to in just a moment because it is Christ who is the true heir to the throne. Well, finally, not only does he ground his deliverance after guaranteeing it, he also delivers Jerusalem. He just doesn't talk about it. He actually does it. Look at verse 36. And the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So, one verse, we have two full chapters telling us everything that's leading up to this, the challenges of the people, the arrogance of the Assyrian king, will he or won't he pray, all the promises, all the guarantees, the pronouncement against Assyria the, of, of their guilt and, and what he's going to do. And when we get to the actual deliverance, it's, it's just curt, isn't it? God does what he says and he does it with no effort at all. Because he is the king of the universe. And it's just in one verse. And in fact, it's even more stark than it actually looks. It it's almost has a, 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 a humorous ring to it. When, when, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead. You see that? The people, as if they could arise in the morning and look around and say, oh, I'm dead now. It happens that quick, just overnight. And if there were any survivors, they saw 186,000 people lying dead. And the answer, the question is for us automatically, well, what did he do? Does it matter? We get a little bit. We've already been told that he will kill the, the, um, the king by a sword from his own country, which we will see. But back in chapter 10, we saw that God used the language that he will use a wasting disease against Assyria. Do you remember that? and that wasting disease would reveal his fire. So some people say that what God did was gave them a fever that burned them up. It was so high that it burned them up and killed them. But Isaiah doesn't tell us. What Isaiah wants to know, wants us to know is God is faithful and he's powerful to carry out what he has promised. And even the most powerful nation in the world at the time cannot stand against him. Well, it's not only the soldiers, but look what in verse 37 what we see. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. So that's, that's the capital, that's where they're living. And God said he was going to do that. He said he was going to turn him around and take him back home. So um, after this, this bloodbath, he goes home and Jerusalem is safe. Verse 38 And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his God, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Arat, Ershadon, his son, reigned in his place. Now this is again just a curt movement from 701 to 681, 20 years later. Because Sennacherib returns and lives, and when when this Ershadon takes over, he takes over in 681 BC, 20 years later. So Isaiah is zooming back and giving us the picture God promised to slay him by the sword in his own country. And now 20 years later, that's exactly what he did. God's timing is his, but he will always carry out what he promises. And this is all on behalf of his people. So... We see these seven facets of this deliverance and all the deliverance in these 30 verses that it's described, it ends up in the last three verses. Sennacherib challenges the ability of Yahweh to deliver Jerusalem. Hezekiah prays for Yahweh's deliverance. Yahweh convicts and sentences the oppressors that necessitate the deliverance. Yahweh gives a sign concerning his deliverance. He guarantees, he grounds, and he delivers his deliverance. What a great storyline that we see. But I want to take you back up to the, the, the grounds that we see. Look at verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He's being faithful to his covenant. And he's being faithful to the covenant to his people. Because that remnant Christ will come from. There will be that when the time is right. When all things are perfect according to God. He sends his son. The, the fulfillment of this, the messianic fulfillment of everything that we see in Isaiah and that's going to take the forefront to, for us in just a couple of weeks when we get into Isaiah 40 and following. We've seen the promises of the Messiah built in and out and, and we've seen it and then we have judgment and then we have hope in the Messiah. In chapter 40 and in passing in, after that we are going to see be overwhelmed with the beauty of the Messiah because God is faithful to his covenant. And the covenant with his people was to make sure that the seed, Jesus Christ, would come from the remnant and accomplish all that God ordained him to do. Just what we read in Acts chapter 4. So all of this has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Because it doesn't matter if we're delivered from a physical battle if our eternity is not secure. Amen? I mean, you can be delivered from things in this life and go home and that's over with. But if you're not square and right with Jesus Christ, then for eternity, all of eternity, you will be in hell. You will be suffering. You will not be delivered from that because you will not be delivered from the penalty of your own sin. That's why Christ comes. That's why this faith, God's faithfulness to his covenant leads to the coming of the Messiah, that all who will believe in him. Everyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens in this life, in, Christ, it, it, it's, it, in life or death, it's Christ alone for us. Nothing more and nothing less. And if you're here this morning and your own wisdom looks more like the, the king of Assyria that you're bragging upon your own wisdom, how how great you've done in your life, how great you've done in your job and in raising your family and in making money and all these things that are earthly, which are not bad, but if that's where your strength comes from instead of in Christ and Christ alone, then when Christ returns and he is returning, purposed by God, and what have we just learned about God and all of his purposes? It will happen. And when he returns, the salvation that is offered to you now will not be offered any longer. God's patience will be done. Now, his patience is to lead you to repentance. So, this morning, here's my plea to you. If you are outside of Christ this morning, come to him now. Because if you stand on your own righteousness, you will end up in the same place that Sennacherib and Assyria do. Turn to Christ. Receive the salvation that comes by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, putting your faith and trust in him. You may not know everything that that means, but you're saying it doesn't matter what it means because I'm turning away from my own works and I'm turning to his. And your eternal life, your hope will be in Christ in life and in death. Now for the rest of us who are in that boat already, we've already been redeemed We are already the people who have received Jesus. Our eternal life is secure. The Holy Spirit is bringing fruit into our lives. I want to encourage you to not worry about these nitpicky things of doctrine until you're walking right with Christ. And all through the scriptures we are shown the pattern of prayer, right? It shows up early in Genesis and goes all the way through where God's people pray. Barren women pray for God to open the womb. Kings pray for God to defeat enemies. Jesus prays in the garden that if this cup can pass, then please let it pass. But what? Your will, not my own will. When he was going through his ministry, he, he sneaks away at different times for strength to unite with his father in prayer. It's constant for us to be shown the necessity and the power of prayer. And today we learn that we're even in the middle of the big cosmic um, advancement of God's will because he ordains the means as well as the end. What a joyful thing for you and your family. What a joyful thing for you to pray with your family and be able to point them to the answers and say God used us in the fulfillment of that. He didn't have to. He was not powerless to do it without it, but he loves us and he wants us to be involved in that. What would God do if the church right here, our church or any church, decided to commit to prayer in the way that Hezekiah committed to prayer? No word about all the disaster around them, just uplifting the name and character of God and depending on him to do his will. It's a fearless life, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I want to live fearless in a world that tells me I should fear everything. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the clarity that your word brings to us. We pray that you would give us the opportunities in life to pray and trust. First, for our own salvation, Lord, to move away from trusting in our own faith, to repent of those sins and turn to you. But also in every day, Father, we are so tempted just to look at all of the possibilities of things that could happen and be fearful of what might happen or, or what are the consequences of this or that when you ask us to be focused on the dot, focused on Christ himself. For it is in Christ that all things are held together. It is in Christ that all, all, every atom and molecule in our world is held together. You are working your will and your way in us. You are advancing your kingdom. You are summing up all things in Christ and everything that you purpose will come to pass. So we ask you, Father, to give us the joy of entering into prayer so we can see more clearly your will work out in our lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.